This is Adoption the Long View, a podcast brought to you by Adopting.com. I'm your host, Lori Holden, author of The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption and co-author of Adoption Unfiltered. Join me as we take a closer look at what happens after you adopt your child and begin parenting them. Your adoption journey isn't over then, it's just beginning. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of thought-provoking and influential guests as we help you make the most of your adoption journey. Like any trip worth taking, there will be ups and downs and challenges. Here's what you're going to wish you'd known from the start. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to Season 5 of Adoption the Long View. 2024 is well underway, and today we launch our final season, which will run monthly through the year. Today's guest is someone I made a bad first impression on, in my own head anyway, because of an assumption I made about her that turned out to be wrong. Jennifer Diane Ghostin was very gracious with me anyway, and in an effort to further explore the blind spot my assumption came from, which may not be unique to me, I have invited her here to talk with us about same-race adoption and other things. Jennifer Diane Ghostin is a same-race domestic adoptee in reunion with both sides of her biological family. After a 27-year career in law enforcement with the Chicago Police Department, she retired in 2014 as a police detective. In 2015, she self-published her memoir, The Truth So Far, A Detective's Journey to Reunite with Her Birth Family. She credits her spiritual journey, which started over 40 years ago, for allowing her path to unfold in unexpected and meaningful ways. In 2021, Jennifer's continued efforts to be open, honest, and public about her lived experience while holding space for other members of the Constellation, primarily adoptees, has led to hosting the podcast Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. She currently co-facilitates the Adoptee Voices writing group created by Sarah Easterly. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Lori. I'm so happy to talk with you today, and I'm so grateful to Sarah Easterly, whom I also collaborate with, for bringing us into each other's orbits. Absolutely. Yes, Sarah's amazing, and you know, congratulations to all three of you for this latest book, Adoption Unfiltered. I'm reading it, currently reading it right now. Oh, that's great. I'm so I, it's it's fun to start watching the reviews come in and see what what it means out in the world. You know, we've done it in such a private way for so long and now it's out in the world. Yeah, so organized, so well organized. Yeah, we do, we put a lot of thought into how to integrate the three viewpoints and the three voices and the three perspectives with a lot of different interviews. So But let's turn to you. Let's start out. um, Give us some context. Tell us the story about how you became a same race adoptee. So I'm from the 60s, born in 1964. And uh, I was in, first of all, I was relinquished at birth and then placed into foster care at four days old and would remain there for two years with the Smith family and permanently placed through adoption to the Ghostin family. And it was finalized by 1967. And I would consider my childhood a healthy one. I think that my parents were really great parents. They were old enough to be my grandparents. And at the same time, they knew what would allow me to thrive. And and by that, I mean a very good education, family and friends that would support me and and just get me 
through childhood into adulthood in the best way possible. They did that. Now, was I allowed to talk about my adoption, my relinquishment, uh, any feelings I had around that, that was not provided? And a lot of that, I think, has to do with insecurities, particularly my mother's end. I think she felt that my desire to find my first family suggested to her that I wasn't happy or that that there was something wrong with this situation that I was in with another family. I think the times would uh, also suggest that a lot of times parents were given these instructions that the child you are adopting is a clean slate. Just be great parents and this child will be fine. So I'll stop there. Your love for your parents is so evident in your memoir. And also you have that passage in your book where you it, you said it took a while for you to get your mother's blessing to search for your birth mom because of this blank slate, clean slate mindset that we had. Agencies were not preparing adoptive parents well for having ongoing conversations about adoption, about adoptedness, about birth parents, about the developmental stages that an adoptee is going to go through to try to figure out who they are. What were the earliest chapters of their lives before they entered into their parents' home? So your mom took a while to get there, but she did. What would it have meant to you to have your mom's permission to think about and wonder about your other mom all through your life if she had been given different guidance? Well, Lori, unfortunately, she never did give me her blessings. My mother passed in 2002, and I would not search until like eight years later. I do know, and this might be what you're referring to, in the audio drama that I created in the telling of more of my story where the book leaves off, there is a scene with my son kind of talking about him having a conversation with her and her saying she should search, meaning I should search. So that I think that might be what you're referring to, but, but that audio drama is part creativity mixed with real life events. So I never personally got her endorsement. I think maybe if time had gone by, maybe that would have happened. But I, w- I think I was so stuck in being silent just by fact of waiting eight years after she died to search. I think I was stuck in this silence about searching and wanting to know something that really was deep down inside very important to me. It took a while for me to kind of get there, like unsilence myself. Thank you so much for clarifying that. And what you're relaying is something I've heard from so many adoptees, especially from that era. But I think even from now, in uh, adoptees in the future, if they don't have their adoptive parents either explicit consent or just the vibe that it's that's okay that their adoptive parents can handle 
they're searching, they're wondering, they're wanting to integrate all of their pieces from their original parents. I think they they have to, like you did, you had to squash down your own desires because of the loyalty and the love that you felt for your mom. And it just makes me so sad for the bad guidance that everybody had that that put adoptees in that position to have to choose between their own needs and their adoptive parents' needs that came from a certain fragility. Yes, yes. And I think my mother was from an era where that's what you did. You got married and you had children and her friends were all having children and she was not able to get pregnant. And that was a source of pain. And so in her 40s, she makes this decision. I want I want a child. I want to be a parent. And her solution was adoption. And I don't think she ever dealt with her pain. Yeah, that is something for adoptive parents to be mindful of, too, is that, as we say so often, that adopting a baby resolves childlessness, but it doesn't resolve grief from infertility. And so that's that's a separate thing that adoptive parents need to be mindful of within themselves, is not putting the burden on a baby to resolve everything. It's it's something that, you know, Dr. Phil says a baby shouldn't be, no baby should be born with a job. And that's a big job to heal a person. When I first yes. met you, Jennifer, you, I made the mistake of assuming that you had been adopted by white parents. And I wonder if I'm not the only one who has faux pod like that with you. In fact, you were adopted by two black parents. People know a lot about same race adoption when white parents adopt white children and something about interracial adoption when white parents adopt children of color. What do we not always get about same race adoption by families of color? What would you like to shed light on? Well, first of all, it's not seamless. It's not like, oh, you got a black set of parents, so you're good. I don't think that that's the attitude with same race white adoptees. I think it's pretty clear that, yeah, it's not seamless. And and I often hear that Black same-race adoptees have it, they have it good. And I will say, and I shared this with you before we started recording, I Googled Black same-race adoptee. And what popped up was transracial, interracial Black adoptees. And I thought that's really interesting, like nothing popped up about Black same-race adoptees. So I have to say that I think that, first of all, transracial, interracial adoptees who Black, who were adopted by white parents, they're in more spaces, they're more visible. So it's not a stretch in my mind for people like yourself and many others, because you are not alone. (laughs) I have been approached many times, oh, I thought you were transracial. But, but it would seem that, yeah, that, if that's what you're hearing from, if those adoptees you're hearing from are Black transracial adoptees, then your mind would go there. I don't think that's a stretch. And one of the things that I have talked with other Black same-race adoptees about is we just aren't as vocal in public places, which partly, I think, has to do with the culture, the Black culture. And I'll just use myself as an example. I was brought up that, to think that certain things just remained in the home, a, a variety of subjects. This isn't discussed in the public. You know, that isn't in, 
isn't information that other people outside of the home should know about, for example. This is it's a family matter. And I think a lot of Black adoptees got that same message from their Black parents. And even today, like I'm 59, and, and when I talk to other adoptees my age, they're not as quick to, say, be a guest on a podcast. I would say most of my same race, and I have a lot on my podcast, Black same race adoptees, I invited them. I asked them to come on. And I'm not so sure they would have done it if it wasn't for me. Does that kind of answer your question? Absolutely. And I think um, when we talk about interracial, transracial adoption, the challenges that are top of mind are skin care, hair care, you know, having the talk about police, some of the cultural things that white people don't get that black adoptees need. And so if we take that away, I think there's a, a sense that, it, like you said, that you're all set. But really what I'm hearing is that that means that you come to the same place where I am with the adoption of my two white children. We're not all set. We have all sorts of still things for my kids to work through, things for me to work through, because all adoptions are transfamilied. Even kinship adoptions in some way have the, the substitution of one parent for another. So there's still all of that, even when we take care of the cultural elements and the hair and skin elements and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just wondering, because I would say it was kind of taboo to talk about adoption, particularly outside of the home, inside of the home too, but certainly out in the public. Would you say that it was taboo for your kids to talk about adoption outside of the home? No, I think because that's it. So interesting. That's an interesting contrast. I think we did it so much in the home that they probably went out and were loud and proud about it in some parts of their development. And, and it was not, there was not a, that kind of a taboo in our situation. That's good. Yeah. I think that's a real important message that it not be taboo. Yeah. And, and what I've heard, and you can correct me, you know, it's, it's always a white person talking about race. So thank you for giving me the space to do this maybe clumsily, but I understand perhaps that black people have not had such a positive experience with dealing with child welfare services, child protection services. And so keeping it private is, is a protection mechanism that they needed to do to not involve outsiders who sometimes bring in their, not sometimes, but bring in their assumptions about what is and isn't a good parent and using power and authority to break up families historically. That's a really good point. If I may say this, it's just coming up for me. My foster home didn't qualify, and I'm using air quotes here with you, to adopt me. I would later learn they wanted to adopt me. The two-parent home with five kids didn't qualify. And the Ghostons qualified because they didn't have any other kids. These are some of the things that I was told. You know, they were well-established. They were older. Parents had been working a while. They had a home, you know, a house, a single family in a nice area. And, and, I, and I just remember these things being checked off. And I'm thinking, but I have been in the, the foster home for two years since four days old. And 
what qualifications in my mind is better than a loving home. So were your foster family, were they black or were they white or were they something black. else? They were black too. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. So we're talking the 60s mm-hmm. and we're talking whatever social work looked like back then. And, and I'm hopeful that maybe things are looked at a lot different now because I think that was a healthy environment for me to be in, especially not having to deal with more disruption. Right. And, and how interesting for you to think about all the different trajectories your life might have taken had you been raised by your original mother, had you been raised by your foster mother, and, and then the reality that you did end up knowing being raised by the Ghostons. All of those different scenarios playing out in, simultaneously in your mind. I can see why you would write to flesh that out and then do your audio memoir as well with some, some playing with, with different scenes. Let's shift over to how the stories you can tell about being a police detective for the Chicago Police Department and the stories that you do tell in your memoir. I'm curious, how did the professional life that you chose fit with the adoptee life that you were handed? Yeah, that was a, that's a beautiful question. I, as a little person, I love doing puzzles. So I know the whole putting pieces together started early. And as I got older, I started to recognize the things that I enjoy. I, I definitely enjoy solving mysteries. I enjoy people like you and I were talking. I'm just curious about people and what makes them who they are and how they think and look and feel about everything. And so I put all these things together. I love being outdoors, solving mysteries, and also being able to help people move through traumas, move through adverse situations. So it only makes sense that that policing and I would be a good match. I think that as the years went on, I began to recognize that, yeah, this detective business has a lot to do with what I'm gonna need. Like I, I need to hone my skills at solving things in what better way? Like I'm learning how to solve things. And this is ultimately going to be something that I do in my personal life, investigating my beginnings. And I think most adoptees are just detectives anyway. Like, like it's in you to want to solve what's going on in your life. And you did put those skills to work. You did find piece by piece the people in your family. And I loved how you told the story of how that happened. And throughout your memoir, The Truth So Far, and your audio drama, which is called Meant to Be, and if people want to hear that audio drama, they can go to the early early episodes of your podcast, Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. But in those, in your creative efforts, you share how Bonnie Upshaw and Jennifer Diane Ghoston came to be and how they came to be integrated. Can you tell us a little bit about the intentions behind these creative efforts of yours? Yeah, I'm happy to. So part of what I've been doing, I would say the last five or six years is embracing my inner child. And let's just say Bonnie was the name given to me at birth. So that's the name I've given my inner child, who's about 12 years old. And so I've been spending time with her over the years. And when I collaborated for the 
the uh, it was supposed to be a theater play, but then COVID hit, so it evolved into an audio drama, as you say, that is at the beginning of my podcast. I just remember sitting with Bonnie, 12-year-old Bonnie, and what is she like? What does she want to do? What, how is she experiencing this thing called relinquishment and adoption? And and I found she had very different views, very different opinion about it than 40-something, 50-something, you know, like adult, real, like adult me had. And I just became a very good listener. And so with the drama, we, my co-writer, he and I just kind of explored what she would say, what would be important to her. And she seemed to be far more attached to the original, my original family and protective. And as an adult me, I wasn't looking at it like that. I wasn't experiencing that way. But when I sat with her, listened to her, and I hope this doesn't sound too woo-woo, but I began to realize the first me needed to be integrated with the me that I know best. And that's what I wanted to accomplish creatively with Bonnie and Jennifer. And I think it was accomplished because through, I guess, my life's journey, my life experiences, I've been very disconnected. For one, I didn't have a whole lot of information. But as I got to know through reunion, you know, who's who and my birth family, particularly on my maternal side, it became a clearer picture to me about how I could like integrate. And ultimately I feel like, and I'm still doing that, but I have done that over the last few years as it relates to embracing my inner child and how she likely can help the adult me. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. And I am just loving hearing your intuitive technique for healing and integrating. You intuitively knew to find Bonnie, to revert back to that curious, playful little girl who all women have that little girl in us and all men have that little boy in us who is not jaded yet, is not, you know, is not bound by logic and can play, can explore, can do those things. And then the integrating that you were able to do with the playfulness and then the groundedness from adult Jennifer too. And the integration between Bonnie and Jennifer, just the ways that you brought all of that out through play and curiosity. I just think that's a brilliant way to help integrate and seamlessly heal, maybe not seamlessly, but to bring all your pieces together in such a you-directed way. Yes, I, I totally agree. It was very cathartic, very healing. And we're talking the 1970s when, when my inner child was 12. And I think that because she was silenced, this gave her an opportunity to have a voice. Yeah, me listening. And, and then even in the writing for the world to hear from her. Like, yeah, just think it was very healing for that time in my life when I was very silent about how I was thinking and feeling. Yeah. To also find your voice as well as the integration. Yeah. To give that little girl back her voice. Exactly. So in, in the bio, we mentioned that the start of your spiritual path, paths began unfolding about 40 years ago. I'd love to hear more about that if you have something to share about that too. 
Yeah, I always like talking about my spiritual journey. And I credit, I actually credit my mother, who was a librarian. And so I was surrounded by books as a little person. And she was very curious about spirituality. So I was brought up Lutheran. Uh, Christianity was yeah, the religion that my mother embraced and, and I as well. And at the same time, she was very interested in knowing more about or learning from spiritual teachers. And, and I just remember one book early on was by Wayne Dyer. And so I just, through the years, would read books by authors like him that were exploring just ways to, I guess, have more tools to get them through this thing called life, you know, in the best way possible so that you're honoring yourself, you're honoring other people, you're just living a more holistic life. And as life would have it, you know, there's losses. When my dad passed, my divorce, like all these different things. And then certainly a career in law enforcement where I am experiencing on a daily basis the traumas that other people have experienced. And I, I want to be clear that all traumas are not traumatic for me. But clearly, I'm, I'm, this is my field of work with people who have experienced horrific traumas. And so spirituality became even more clear to me that I have to be able to center myself, kind of put my oxygen mask on first every day if I'm going to be of help to the people I'm serving. Yeah, so I do think that spirituality has been a, played a major part, a very big tool in just living a healthier life. Yeah, I love hearing that because um, when I was reading your memoir, I was wondering how did you metabolize all that you witnessed, all that you absorbed from your work with the police department? And it seems like maybe you were wired for healing and integration. You had this in you, you had this inner knowing of how to rise, how to heal, how to metabolize hard things. So um, thank you for sharing that with us. Regarding your podcast, Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, what can you share with adoptive parents about some of the themes that are revealed to you there by you and your guests who are primarily adoptees? Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the podcast. Yeah, one of the themes I would say is that most of my guests have early on, quite a few early on in life, realized what tools were helping them heal. Writing is one of them, music. A lot of guests have, have expressed how they knew they had to find something to lean into healing once they realize how hard it has been as an adoptee for a variety of reasons. And some people have had much harder times than others. I think that most adoptees are clear that they feel or have felt quite misunderstood by their adoptive parents, either not allowing them to talk about it or to not feel silenced, you know, that seems to be a, a reoccurring thing that I had to figure out a way, absence the support from my adoptive parents. And, and I think we would all agree, most of uh, adoptees would agree 
that we don't want to have to do this alone. We want the support of our adoptive parents to be able to have a safe space to talk about what's coming up for us. And I put this in my book too, and I'm I'm often talking about the fact that I identify with a lot of different things as a woman, you know, female, as, as a Black person, you name it, as an adoptee. In every identity that I have, I have been able to be in those spaces. And I'm talking growing up. And it's important to be able to be in those spaces. And yet, as an adoptee, I was never allowed to be in that space. Yet, it's something that's a part of my identity. And I question why would an adoptive parent want an adoptee not to be able to to have that space to embrace that part of their identity? And the only thing I can think of is, is there some shame about that when you're not allowing a person to be in a space that they identify with? That is such a good question. And I'm thinking that two words are coming to my mind, real and only. And I think it is a challenge for adoptive parents to need to be the real parent, which also can mean being the only real parent. And I talk a lot in in most of my podcast episodes. Thank you for opening this door for me so I can include it in this one. (laughs) And a lot of my written work is this shift from an either or mindset about parents, the this one or that one, to a both and heart set this one and that one and this inclusive expansive space that is not such a stretch to cultivate if we have a little bit of guidance around the real and the only that framework i also want to say something else jennifer to people who may be listening adoptive parents who and and this is who i was early in my journey just tell me what to say so that my kids feel like they can talk to me about things And I just want to say, it's not about the words. You can say, you can talk to me as much as you want, but you can't fake it with your adoptee. They will know if those words are true or not. So you really have to be doing the inner work of creating that sense of expansiveness and inclusiveness and spaciousness for them to bring their actual feelings to you. If you aren't actually doing that, the words you say will not matter. Do you have any anything to say about that? I love what you just said. And it, what comes up for me is nurturing your own garden. You have to do that. Yeah. And maybe what you modeled for us in integrating with Bonnie Upshaw, we adoptive parents can do too. We can attend to that little girl or that little boy who didn't get his dream, her dream to come true about having the kid that looks just like you, the mini me. If we can attend to that, maybe we can help that person heal and show up better for the actual child that we are raising. That was good, Lori. Yes. Because we all have an inner child. And are we giving that inner child space to speak? And yeah, and, and to help the adult you. That's what happened for me, for sure. Yeah, and that integrating can take place when we can find out what needs to be integrated. So when you had me on your podcast last fall, 
you gave me the great favor of reading a passage from each of my books. And I, at this time, would love to return the favor to you and ask you if you would read something from your creative work for us. Oh, thank you. I'd be glad to. And yeah, you were a wonderful guest and I appreciate you accepting my invitation. So I chose, and it was kind of tricky, but because I know your audience are adoptive parents who really want, they want to be great parents. I know they do. They wouldn't be listening to your show if they didn't. And, you know, the title is so fitting, Adoption, The Long View. Like, I think you say adoption is not a one-time event. It is a lifelong journey, and that's so true. So anyway, I chose from page 34, and it's from chapter Cage Curiosity, chapter three. The bottom of 34, it says, nurture and nature are sometimes pitted against one another. I believe that nurture is an opposite nature. They can go hand in hand, and I'm proof of that. At birth, we bring physical qualities over from a countless number of ancestors. And from there, the environment influences our personalities. I had no reference point yet concerning my characteristics by nature or heredity passed down from one generation to the next. So I was curious. I wanted to know more about my nature. I consider it valuable information. People who are not adoptees are able to identify some of the reasons why they are the way they are because of inherited physical traits. The one thing I know for certain is my nature was positively influenced by my nurture. And that's what's most important. And I chose that because I think that subject, we, like we could talk for hours. I think most people can talk for a long length of time about nature, nurture, like all of that. How does that play out? And I want adoptive parents to understand that as an adoptee, there is a DNA part of me. There is a part of me that maybe is so different than my adoptive family, not good or bad, right or wrong, just different. And in the family, when that surfaces, I want my differences to be embraced because a lot of it has nothing to do with, with me. It just has to do with DNA and that I have another family that I share DNA with that are not here with me through the years, through the decades. So that was important to me to just kind of let adoptive parents know that the adopted child has some inherent things about them that should be accepted and, in, and embraced and even encouraged. Like it may, be, it may be something about your adopted child is so far different from you and what you know and, and your, even your aspirations and just get curious about what that is. And this is a theme that I hear so often from the adoptees I talk with, which is see us for who we are. See us who we actually are, not your projections and dreams and desires onto us. That is a gift. And I love the passage that you chose because it so well illustrates that 
you know, I call it the either or mindset because when we're in our mind, our, our brain is an organ that likes to divide and get things down to the smallest level. And we want to tease out, divide nature versus nurture. But when we're in that both and heart set, the heart is an organ that wants to unite and bring things together and find wholeness and integration. And when we can make that shift, it doesn't take a lot from an either or mindset to a both and heart set, we are going to be in a better position to help our adoptees find all their pieces, nurture all their pieces, integrate all their pieces, and see them for who they actually are. It's our work to do that so that we can show up in the way that our kids need us to. Well said, yeah. Yeah. I would like to ask you the last question, which is something we're asking of all guests for season five. You will be the first one to receive this question. Jennifer, what do you wish that adoptive parents knew from day one or today? I love that question. And what came up for me was an answer from one of my guests on my podcast, Sophie P. Chupia Posey. And, and let me just give a little background. I asked her, if you were in a room full of adoptive parents, we'll say 2,000 of them, what would you say? And these were her words. Being an adopter is an incredibly, almost sacred responsibility. It's a mission you have to step into with your eyes wide open. You can't adopt a child and, ex and expect it to be the solution to whatever problems you're dealing with, especially if it's in the relationship to infertility. I get it. For some people, having a child is the most important, almost primordial thing. But if you haven't taken a hard look at yourself, like, am I really fit to be a parent to any kid, bio, adopted, whatever, think of that child as a human being who will be a part of your family, but won't at the same time for obvious reasons. It's natural. The more enriched by it. I just loved her answer because it wasn't it wasn't negative. It was just, this is what you want to think about. This is what you, like, especially that line that your child is a human being who will be a part of your family, but won't at the same time. I hope that that's just like a statement to totally reflect on, because like you were saying earlier, and I've heard many adoptive parents say it, we just want to be like your only, right? You, you, we we think, looking at it like, we're your real parents, and certainly adoptive parents are, let me be clear, but we're not your only real parents. Exactly. That is such a powerful statement that you shared from your guest, and thankful to you for that. What it brings up for me, when you say sacred responsibility, those are the words that really stuck out to me. I think it's normal. It happened to me, and it maybe happened to other adoptive parents that at first, the baby you adopt is in service of you. It's to meet your needs. When you start to grasp this sacred responsibility, you also start to grasp that you are in service to your child and you have that inner work to do to show up for your child in that space of sacred responsibility to them. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. Yeah, for sure. And, and what I would add to Sophie's words, beautiful words, is that I think 
adopters have the opportunity, like this awesome opportunity, maybe the ultimate opportunity to grow in compassion, empathy, and to continually extend grace to the adoptee. Beautiful, beautiful. Continually extend grace. And when we do that, we get it back in return too. It, we create a world of grace. Yes. Jennifer, do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to share? No, I, I think this has been a beautiful conversation and I, I'm just happy to be a part of what you do, the work you do. I think you do an amazing job in the community. And I know sometimes it's really hard because people have different opinions. And, and I think that people, like all of us could just get better at accepting that we can have different perspectives and not fall out like we just can. And I want to be a person that just stays curious and stays interested in learning what I don't know. Like it's just so much I don't know. I think in that way, we are kindred spirits. And I want to thank you for coming and playing with me today and um, really fleshing out some of these really interesting ideas. I do want to just say once again that talking about race is hard. I am very clumsy at it. And so thank you. And thanks to the listeners for letting me play, and hopefully suspending some judgment if I got some some things wrong. But I think it's imp it's, it's better to enter into these conversations than to not have them. So thank you for being here this morning. I agree. And thank you to all your listeners for being here. Thank you. A special thanks to adopting.com for producing and sponsoring this podcast. Please subscribe, give this episode a rating and share with others who are on the journey of adoptive parenting so that more people join in for real talk on the complexities of adoption earlier and earlier in their journey. You will be doing them as well as me a favor. With each episode of Adoption the Longview, we bring you guests who expand your knowledge of and ease with adoptive parenting. Thanks to each of you for tuning in and investing in your adoptions long view. May you meet everything on your road ahead with confidence, curiosity, and compassion.